There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host, and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who have shaped us, coming in paperback on the 6th of February. For our fifth series of Your Book, we're in the USA, and this time we're in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, another part of the city to claim Henry Miller as its own. Williamsburg is the home of several literary salons, a dinner-based book club, a restaurant named Pies and Vies, and today's guest, Feminist Fight Club and This Is 18 author and New York Times gender editor Jessica Bennett. We talked to Jessica about teen diary rituals, the politics of cohabiting and combining your book collections, and her own collection of 70s feminist DIY manuals. You'll also hear from Jessica's husband Sam and Charlie the dog. Enjoy. So I've just seen three women on the table. Is that what you're reading at the moment? Yes. Um, we just got married and we okay. were... Oh, thank you. Serious. Thank you. Um, How so, you Like a month, maybe? Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> yes, this is our like marriage yeah. license, maybe, that we can't figure out if we're actually married. So, you know, uh-huh. TBD. Um, I but... was looking for us the other day. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea where it is. Uh, I need to small. call that number and be like, are we actually married? <laughs> um, so we went on a honeymoon immediately after, and it was the first time, I mean, maybe ever, or, like, since I've been a working person, that I truly took two full weeks off and, like, just read books, and it was amazing. Um, so I started reading Three Women, which, you know, I had heard a lot of the, the reviews of, and people were talking about it. It was interesting, because many of the men I've spoken with who are reading it are, like, completely stunned like they had no idea this is what women really think inside their heads or this is how they feel and I wasn't particularly surprised by any of it it was darker than I thought Mm. like the stories are a bit darker but I mean I think it's a really nuanced look at the way that it's really complex like female sexuality is complex and even surprised me for sure is the longing but so much of it is about needing to be seen. Mm, and mm-hmm. even, you know, the sort of the desire. I think, I know people who read it who are expecting it to be like super, super sexy. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite bleak, actually. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's not like erotica <laughs> by any means. And, you know, without giving away spoilers, I mean, just understanding how complicated it can be. Mm. And like, even when, you know, the, the story of the girl who, has this affair with her teacher and it turns into a a lawsuit 
but seeing from her perspective the way that, like you said, she really wanted to be seen and how it derailed her, completely derailed her, like her feelings about herself. What feels more abusive, and this is very kind Mm -hmm. of, I think, scary area to start tackling, it's not even the sexual relationship that damages her like the way he woos her and then neglects her does. Yeah, it's the kind of breadcrumbing is a word that that I've used before to describe this, not necessarily in an abusive context, but it's like attention, 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 suddenly silence, and Mm. you have no access to that person because they control the power in the relationship. And in her case, they control the power, and the, the power dynamic was very off. To suddenly just feel like you're yanked back and forth by this person that seems to have this control over you. I went into a deep rabbit hole immediately Googling to find out like what oh, actually yeah, happened in that case. Because she's the one whose name, whose real name is used and his real name is used. And I was, I, I don't want to give it away, but it was uh, fascinating and very real, I think. And then this is the, our book that will come out next week. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. This is it, It's cool. I love the cover. It's very it's it's cute, right? Those, um, Fabulous kind of early 80s, like Vogue covers and things. Yeah, totally. It's very like zany cutouts. So, is there, these profiles of all 18 year old young women and kind of where they're at and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. What was the, the research like? Where did you go? How did you find your subjects? Yeah, so, you know, we knew we wanted to profile young women around the world. We didn't exactly know how to get to these young women, and we knew that we wanted to have the young women be photographed by other young women. So it was sort of like working backwards in that one of our amazing photo editors reached out to a lot of professional photographers in these different regions and through the professional photographers they located each photographer located a couple of young women photographers aspiring photographers and then once we selected those photographers each of them presented us with three 18 year old girls in their own communities and did little mini bios of them, captured a few photos of them, and from those we selected each character subject. But it was like a very (laughs) insane process involving multiple languages and time zones and adults and teenagers and people who communicated via many different uh, mechanisms, like some of the girls only want to Instagram DM (laughs) and were trying to use email, and it, it was fascinating and kind of hilarious at times. I've just opened it speakly on the um, London page, a profile of um, Ruby Jabbadil. Mm-hmm. What I love so much about these pictures and the way it's presented is, I don't say, I mean, these, you know, these pictures are beautiful, but they look very unlike lots of the images that I see of young women, sort of the way they choose to present themselves. They all look very kind of... I don't, know. I don't know what is authentic anymore, but you know, they're sort of, they're not, they don't look kind of glossy or styled. Mm-hmm. I love this of, I think, I guess, Ruby and her friends um, going uh, after school, it said, with her friends Mia and Megan. And they've all got just very like normal hair. You know, it's not that sort of like it's big kind styled, of, you know, yeah. low dried princessy ways. And all that, just like the stance is very natural and unposed. Oh, this is a 
So each of the photographers was paired with a professional mentor. And part of the reason for that is we wanted to kind of guide them and coach them. And most of them had done a little bit of documentary photography before, but not necessarily journalistic. And we did want to make sure, you know, these were not posed photos. These were not selfies with a filter on them. They were documentary style. And so we wanted to catch them in their natural environments without them necessarily preparing for it or, or knowing. And so I think that we managed to do that pretty well. Did anything come out of the profiles that really surprised you? Was there anything that sort of emerged about yeah. womanhood that you didn't see coming? You know, so there's girls in 21 countries and, you know, from completely different backgrounds. Some of them are in college and, and you know, already thinking about their careers there's a young woman who has a child and is not in school. There is another young woman who was married in her teen years. You know, so coming from completely different backgrounds, I think we expected to get very different stories. So one of the most surprising things was to see the parallels about how these girls think, the way that they think about things like climate change and global warming, and they really worry for their futures. Or little simple things like we asked everyone who do you turn to for advice? And almost everyone said their mom, which was very sweet. (laughs) And, you know, other things like how they use technology, what they like to do, like girls all over the world want to watch Netflix (laughs) and drink boba tea. And so it was interesting to see even, you know, across oceans and cultures and completely different life experiences, there were actually these little strings, these parallels that the girls had in common. I think that's a really hopeful idea for now that we're all so much more alike than we realise. We've um, talked for ages about one book, which is why I love doing this. The two books, including this is eighteen, that I'm going to go to your shelf. And this shelf is these shelves. This um, bookcase is beautiful. First of all, it's um, it's taller than us, um, but I love that there's a. You have a system. We have the blue books and the green books. <laughs> we have the, the white and cream books, and we have the pink books and some black books. It's interesting. There's a lot of pink when it comes to books about women. Yes! You can see the, the pink fading into red section is overrepresented. Um, were a lot of these books that you came to for research reasons, or did you read them and then did they kind of inform no, a lot of them, I mean, the wonderful thing, one of the wonderful things about being a journalist is a lot of people send you books. <laughs> and so you are always kind of up to date on what's coming out. A lot of these are books that I've collected for research in one way or another. Either I was writing a piece about some subject that they applied to, or I interviewed the author, or when I was doing my own book, these were background research that I was compiling. And so I was actually thinking about this there are not that many that I've read front to back. Like, these are not necessarily my weekend pleasure reads. A lot of them are research, but very important well, critical research. Now I feel a lot better because there are a lot of books here. Yeah, and they are organized. Well, they're color-coded. I've tried to sort of make this bookshelf, um, which is a point of contention in my relationship, <laughs> um, a, an art piece. <laughs> and uh, it was... My bookshelf before my husband and I moved in together, and he will say that this was very crazy, but when we were moving into our present apartment, 
from an apartment a couple floors down, a smaller apartment. I insisted, rather than having the movers take the books, I insisted on carrying them sec by section oh, so you up myself knew. because it had taken me so long to order them in this way, <laughs> um, which is by color, but also by subject. And anyway, we always I think that story was told in, in one of our wedding speeches because it's <laughs> slightly insane. Um, but yeah, I think lots of people are going to hear this and be like, I will do that next time I move. Like yeah, you and and you'll and Sam, my husband, has his own book area, which is over here. Ah. <laughs> so this is more of the feminist collection on these shelves. Yeah, so that's pretty. Imagine, like you know, like before we get married, Sam, you have to read all of these. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna pick this out because this looks great. Mm-hmm. This is "You Don't Need a Man to Fix It" book, the Woman's Guide to Confident Home Repair by Jim Webb and Bart Houseman. Two men, so, two men, <laughs> mansplaining DIY. This is the book that asks the question: Did you marry for love or just to get your toilet fixed? <laughs> have you read this? Have um, you used any of the repairs? So I've flipped through it we are doing a home renovation project not in this home that we're standing in but in a home that we purchased in California which is a very absurd place to own a home when you are a renter in Brooklyn but so be it um we did it and we're renovating it and so I thought you know I should probably learn some basics of home repair and I came across this book that was published in I think 1970 the cover is just incredible Credible, like this is more of a joke book than an actual useful book. I think. <laughs> would, you, but, would you read uh, this description yes, in the so back? So there's a lovely black and white image of a woman. I don't know what is she doing. That looks like a door. Something lock, with some maybe wires. It looks like <laughs> oh, a door or doorbell. Maybe ah. installing a doorbell. Replace this defective switch. Okay. And then the text says, "This is a photo of a human being fixing a light switch." Oh, there we go. This human being is a woman. (laughs) She was raised to believe that she was helpless and that only men can fix things. But the authors of this book taught her to fix not just this light switch, but her toilet and her doorbell too, and many other things. With this book, they'll teach you too. So, you know, you just need men to teach you how to fix things (laughs) according to this book. And it has a lovely cover with a very manicured woman's hand, like really nice French tip nails, holding a screwdriver. And yeah, she's not got sort of red nail polish on or anything. No, it's very natural colour. Fairly modest. Also, um, home repairs without a man. And the feminine, not feminist, the feminine fix-it auto. Yeah, that's the I, the, female fix-it section. No idea this genre existed, but you have a dedicated space. I, I mean, I have thought recently that I should modernize these books. Like, maybe there needs to be a You Don't Need a Man to Fix a Book written by a woman. Yes. And so these were sort of research inspiration as I thought about that, but because have not I yet executed. Think, I hate to say it, but I think as... I'm not sure we've got any better at that. I think everybody has just got worse at fixing their stuff. Well, now you call it task rabbit. Uh, I mean, the difference is my husband can't fix anything either. Sorry, Sam. I was going to say, we have a plumber who I think I'd, I'd need them to have that book because yeah. our plumber has come to fix our toilet many times okay. and it's never right. quite worked. Or we just rent and so, you know, our wonderful super fixes things for us. Can you remember the first book that you read where you met characters or women who seemed sort of unusually or excitingly autonomous or mm. the first female characters you really sort of questioned? What was expected of them? So I was obsessed with 
and I'm not going to argue that this was an empowering book series, but <laughs> it's going to lead me to that. Uh, the Sweet Valley High books oh. growing up. And I'm actually shocked that my mother let me read them um, because they're pretty horrifying. But for those who may not be familiar, or maybe everyone is, these are like beautiful blonde uh, California girls and it's about their lives in middle school and then into high school and like their problems with boys and like driving convertibles like they're living a very specific privileged Southern California life. I will argue that Elizabeth Wakefield is a kind of a feminist icon is a bit strong but uh-huh. in, in the universe of Sweet Valley. Right. Right. Yes. Elizabeth was a smart one. Jessica was like the popular. Yes. Popular one. (laughs) Euphemism for many things. Exactly. Um, When I was in elementary school, my best friend was Elizabeth and I'm Jessica. So, you know, we really connected on that level. (laughs) But those books I think were interesting because it wasn't until, I don't know, late high school or even early college that I sort of thought back on them and was like, why did I, like, those did not apply to me. That was some, like, aspirational thing of a very specific, privileged type of existence that didn't really lead the inspiring story that I wanted to read. And so I think that I sort of had some sort of shift at some point where I started looking back on the books that I read growing up, thinking, why did I read that? And and often this is an interesting conversation I've had with my mother over the years because, you know, she is a feminist, she's a teacher, she's a reader, and yet she wanted to kind of let me choose what I was to read. And so even things like Flowers in the Attic, like there's so many books we could look back on that are like creepy and disturbing. It's so weird how that is, there's like a handful of books that come up on nearly every episode and Flowers in the Attic is one, like every awesome sort of fiercely feminist writer I know has an intense relationship with Mm -hmm. Lucy Andrews um go ask Alice is another one that I obsessively read I should go back and reread these books as an adult now but go ask Alice because it was diaries Mm. and it was supposedly these anonymous diaries did you believe it was a diary when you read it or did did. you know no I I fully believed it and I I felt it felt so intimate in some way it felt intimate and sort of Illicit. I don't know if I, I think I hid the book. Like, I think that I didn't tell my parents that I was reading it. And, you know, it was all about drugs and it felt like sort of this secret thing. And the fact that it was supposedly someone's diary also felt a little secret. Like, given, you know, she was off her tits the whole time. She's very good at the writing. There was right? I know. No sort of, you know, it's like Hemingway. <laughs> very verbal. <laughs> um, I think it's really interesting, though, thinking about This Is 18 and sort of being a, sort of a girl or a woman in adolescence. And we think that now it feels like a time that's super, super performative. But then I think it's always been that way. I think every teenage diary has been written because you think someone's going to read interesting. it. Maybe. I found my, I regret doing this, but I found my diaries at some point in my early 20s, I think. And they were so horrifying and embarrassing that I trashed them. I these, you, you read them in your early 20s or you kept them? I, I, read, I reread them in my early 20s and I, they were so embarrassing that I got rid of them. Um, but... I regret it. I wish that I had kept them. I want to read them now. And I feel like it's a relic of a certain era. I think mostly just talking about boys that I liked. <laughs> and my feelings about myself. You know, I think like... Prominent feminist uh, author. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, feeling horrible about yourself and um, 
self-esteem, all of the things that I think high school girls go through. Um, I don't know that I was writing them in, with in mind that others were reading or that it was an audience. Maybe there was sort of a performative aspect to other things, but I think the difference now is that you actually have an audience. Like maybe mm. one person would find my diary and read it, but there was no chance that it was going to be like posted to the internet and there would be this huge audience. And so Instagram in a way mm. and various platforms, I think, allow young people to actually have the audience that our generation just had in our minds. Yes. There's no protection from yourself, almost. You can just put it out there. I mean, of these books that are in front of me, which do you think you found most kind of moving or enlightening or or compassionate about that? Because I think it's, you know, everything here that I'm looking at is very much about sort of, like, empowerment. Like, well, you know, this is the problem. But sometimes I wonder whether there's lots of sort of there's a rhetoric that you should feel powerful and strong and confident. And actually, sometimes I'd like to see more that sort of understands why, why we don't always. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple. Let's see if I can find them. This is the flaw of how I've organized this. is that you can't ever find anything. So The Curse of the Good Girl by Rachel Simmons, who's become a, a friend of mine. This was a book that I read when I was a young reporter at Newsweek and sort of struggling with coming into my own, struggling with wanting to appear and feel more confident. And what she gets at in, in this book is really the way that, you know, society has told women that they must be nice all the time and they must be modest. And it was the first time that I sort of allowed myself to identify that there was a social explanation for the way that I was feeling internally, and it really shifted my thinking. It must have been interesting to come to that at a time when you were sort of relatively new to the formal workplace, which is, I think, the time when we have to be the nicest. Well, exactly, and to come from university where, you know, women are basically running the show. Like, we're getting more degrees, we're excelling in all these different ways, we're being told that we can accomplish anything and then you sort of like get your first real job and you enter the workforce and you're like oh shit like this isn't actually as simple as I thought it was and this is this is forever this is until I'm 70 what (laughs) right right and there's no end I think that the, the discovering that you know inequity was real and it was institutional it wasn't just in my head was actually did ultimately feel empowering because it allowed me to identify that this was a problem, not my problem. That mm. you're like, lots of people are profiting from me feeling like this in yeah. different ways. I'm very useful to the world if exactly. I feel this way. Um, what else? What's that book, Bonk? Just because I didn't know that that was a... Um, <laughs> I didn't know that was a, a universal word. <laughs> um, yeah, Bonk. Boink, I feel like others would say. <laughs> uh, Mary Roach, incredible writer. She sort of takes a like an anthropological approach to her writing where she really embeds. Um, and I guess that could be a double entendre for this book because this is all about human sexuality and sex and how we think about sex. And so she decides to explore this by going into a science lab at, at one point and like having herself examined. And I think she goes into bedrooms with couples. Um, but her writing is so entertaining. And, you know, she blends first person with this kind of cultural anthropological perspective. And she's hilarious in the process. 
This looks incredible. I'm just imagining her sort of, you know, meeting people. It's like, hi, can I come home with you? It's exactly. for science. Exactly. I just opened a chapter where she's um, describing um, different people's testicles. And they're all mm. different kinds. Of, there's a lima bean. There's a navy bean. I'm not sure what a navy bean is. Perfect page to open to. <laughs> I, feel I won't like comment that. on that. But I'm so sorry. I'm oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> no, well, don't no, worry. It's fine. It's fine. Marriage books. As a newlywed, we have Marriage Confidential oh, by yeah. Pamela Pamela Hogg, Pamela Hack. Mm-hmm. Marry him. The case for settling for Mister Good Enough by Laurie Gottlieb. Mm-hmm. She's just got a new book out, hasn't yeah, she? Um, about being a, a therapist who's also a journalist. Have you read this? Yes. Um, and does she make a compelling? Argument. So this actually this book grew out of a magazine article that she wrote for the Atlantic. I think this was in. I'm trying to remember, 2010, 2009, and it was called something like Marry Him, The Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. And she basically made the case that, you know, you don't need to wait for the perfect person. That perfect person may never come. Like, actually, you should just, like, grab someone and do it. And at the time, one of my best friends, who was a colleague of mine at Newsweek when I was a writer there before Newsweek, turn into sort of like a weird cult um (laughs) we became obsessed with this we were so angered by this we thought it was an affront and like horrified by it and we wrote this story pegged in part to her piece and her and her book um that actually argued against marriage and it was called I don't the case against marriage and my friend Jesse Ellison and I made this case about why Marriage was this construct that people sort of turned into this thing that was supposed to be everything. And, you know, divorce rates were through the roof. And there were all these ways you could actually accomplish the things of having a healthy partnership without having to have that piece of paper. And so, of course, this was the subject. It ran on the cover of Newsweek and has become this sort of famous thing that people talk about now when they're mostly making fun of us. Um, <laughs> and me, in particular, because I just got married. So this made it into... this come <laughs> yeah. up in your wedding speech. And I do, it did come up in the wedding speech, and I specifically remember at the time um, a couple of female editors at Newsweek who were working with us on the piece sort of like wryly saying... Let's talk again in a few years. Like, let's see where you end up. We reversed our position. Ultimately, maybe there were some similarities in both arguments because you're both arguing that this is not a not a solution, that mm-hmm. you cannot look for someone else who's going to complete you and make your life perfect. Just the arguments had different names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the, I feel like if this came out now, that it would be like branded in a totally different way well but people were very mad about it at the time <laughs> but yes God, isn't it funny isn't it, in these sort of times of constant internet outrage how quickly we forget what the last thing we were oh, cross yeah. about was completely and i sort of missed the time when we were cross about that and not i know like things would, <laughs> are truly are terrible now we didn't know how good we had it i'm much more of the non-fiction reader in the house and sam is much more of the fiction i have been reading the elena ferranti Napolitan. Ah. And of course, that relationship is fascinating and complex between the two women. Um, and, and I think sort of indicative of many friendships where you love each other, but sometimes you hate each other and it's, you're competitive, but and I think you're as not. And well as the, you know, the, the competition and envy and jealousy, there's also right. like 
why the hell are you making that choice? Why right. would, I can never remember right. the uh, Lila, you know, mm -hmm. going off and like marrying the gangster right. and being a teenage bride. Right. Because like, why the hell? Yeah. yeah. You know, go to university. If Lenny can, yeah. you can. How did you find, did you read those books? Because I kind of came to them when they were just super, super, super hyped. And I always think it's interesting that that's the kind of book that you have a relationship with it before you read it. Yes. And it's interesting to see how it fits into your kind of expectation gap or not. Yeah, well, so I actually came to them very late and I just read the second one. Um, and, you know, everyone was talking about them. Everyone I knew had read them. In fact, my husband's aunt is the translator for them you're kidding <laughs> me the famous Anne goldstein oh my god so it was like i should have read them and we would go to family dinners and i'd be sort of embarrassed that i hadn't so can i don't know if i can ask about this if you're like oh please don't ask me about this because everyone does but how, what was the kind of the time frame between them being written and being translated and was there a period where and Goldstone was sort of, you know, doing this work and doing these books, but like, but no one here was reading them, or were they kind of instantly sort of culty? I don't know if I know the answer to that. That's a great question. <laughs> I, I'm but not she, sure. Like, come, like Thanksgiving, it's like, oh my god, well, I've been like translating Italian like, novel for months. And, and Anne is so modest that she, you know, you wouldn't even know, like, she wouldn't have told us that this was happening. So I'm not sure. Sam, do you know? Same thing. Yeah, it's like if you asked her, if you went by what she was saying, like. You'd have no idea they were famous. <laughs> and of She's course, like, oh, I just translated this book. You know, right, whatever. very modest. And of course, had a full-time job as the copy chief of The New Yorker while she was translating a lot of these. But I think there was a pretty... I mean, I think that it's been written about that there was some time in between and then suddenly these exploded in the culture. And I, I then watched the HBO series um, that took on the first book and I think has been renewed, so it will continue which I thought was pretty well done, actually. Because that voice is so, so singular. And I often wonder, what I really wish I could have read them in Italian because it's, it's so, I, I think that sort of first person, yeah. it's like nothing else I know. It's almost like in the greatest way, just being hit over the head. Mm -hmm. There's a real driving rhythm to it. Yeah. But it's so interesting as well, isn't it? That I guess so many more people have read that version of it, the English language version, than the right. original. Right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book so precious that if you time-traveled back to the 18th century, you daren't read it during a carriage journey because Dick Turpin would stage a hold-up for it. This week, it's Corregiadora by Gail Jones, first published in 1975 and just reissued in the UK by Virago Modern Classics. This novel is driven by the voice of Ursa Corregiadora, and it begins with the end of her marriage to her abusive husband, Mutt, as Ursa considers her life, the people in it, and the horrific legacy of sexual violence in her family, as well as the unignorable presence of Corregiadora, the slave owner who abused generations of women, and is Ursa's great-grandfather and grandfather. Corregiadora is stunning and shocking. Jane's talent is luminous, making every page glow. The book is, in turns, beautiful, poetic, painful and un- unbearable. It's extremely difficult to read, but in 2020, it's much harder not to read. On publication, Toni Morrison said no novel about any black woman could ever be the same after this. The novel is 45 years old, but it deserves our urgent attention. That's Corregiadora by Gail Jones, published by Virago, and out now. Now, back to Jessica. So these, all of these different, like, foreign editions and things? Yeah, these are foreign editions of my book, Feminist Fight Club. Um, the covers are very fun in some cases, and very weird in others. <laughs> Do you have a favourite? I think I like the French, um, though I've been told... <laughs> okay, hold on, so, well, oh, this yeah. is a brick. I'll get it. This <laughs> um, Sorry, I feel bad making you go with oh chat. God, the French is very cute, and... Very petite. <laughs> well, I love as well is that it's not, you don't have to know French to know what that means. Exactly. Le Fight Club Feminist. Yeah. Um, though it was interesting, I was in Paris doing a book signing and a couple of people came up to me and were like, the, the way, who said in English, the way that this is translated is horrifying. And next time you should really like make sure you're proofreading. So I have no idea what it says. <laughs> but um yeah, it's very adorable. I don't think it, I think just a lot of the subtleties around like defining feminist, like things that could easily be mistranslated <laughs> and turn into something it's offensive. Well, it's very, you know, broadly speaking, it's kind of a different market. And I suppose while well, you could say that if someone is buying a book called Feminist Fight Club, they are but I think that feminism is, I mean, you know, fe- feminism is universal, but it is, I guess it's kind of different in France, right? Yeah. That people are approaching it in a kind of a different way. Well, I think it's interesting because, and I learned a lot of this when I was out there, I probably should have known this, but, you know, I think we're more culturally progressive, whereas they actually have laws in place to deal with things like equal pay and quotas on boards, whereas, like, in America... People are so averse to that idea. Um, but at the same time there, it's like the Me Too movement has been criticized and there's been this whole 
narrative around, well, like, how are you supposed to flirt? Yes. (laughs) Um, That really bothered them. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And, you know, this is just seduction. Like, this is how we do it here. And they're still like, yes, you know, feminism, very good, very... But um, again, it's like the the version of being French that is exported to the UK, so it's not fair or not accurate, but still like... But it's very important to, you know, to be thin and have your red lipstick and and do all this. Yeah, so there's this real contrast that is pretty fascinating. Uh, so do you ever swap books? Are there any books here that you've kind of lent each other or do you ever give each other books as gifts? Have, have we ever lent each other no. <laughs> books? No. Literally zero. Sam tried to sure read... zero time. <laughs> Sam tried to read Three Women while we were on our trip and gave up really quickly. Jess doesn't like to read books that don't have facts in them. <laughs> and I only like to read, like, sci-fi. <laughs> I mean, you could sort of cut out and they get an encyclopedia and just like pop the odd entry in his book and might be like, here are some engaging facts. Yeah. Um, Should we go back to the other Mm -hmm. shelves? Let's go to the blue section. Sure. What is because internet? I think I need to read this book. This is very rules of language. So Gretchen McCogg is a linguist, but she's sort of an internet linguist. And so... For years, I have called her as a source when I've been writing stories about language. Things like, I used to write a column on on internet language. So things like the modern use of LOL, but like the different nuances in how you uh, express it over text message. So like the difference between an all capital HA or like a lowercase LOL or like a HA period, which is basically like screw you, um, and, and these various nuances, um, or things like how emojis have become part of conversation and the nuance in how we incorporate emoji into language. So anyway, Gretchen is incredible, and she's written this book called Because Internet, which is basically talking all about the different ways that Internet culture and memes have worked their way into language. There's a, I'm reading from um, memes. I can have cheeseburger, I think. It says, I'm going to quote from Lulspeak Genesis. Mm-hmm. Are you, have you always been quite savvy or are there any emojis that you've sort of misused? Because I always, always think that. And like things like, I do things like heart eyes and hearts all the time. Mm-hmm. And then someone, oh, I think... I think in some cultures, this means more than I intend it to mean. Yeah, though I feel there's a lot of nuanced emojis. Hard eyes, I feel like, is sort of like a platonic love. I've heard as well that, like, regular hard eyes, kind of fine. Cat hard eyes, that's a bit much. Yeah, you know, it's amazing what you can express in emoji. And also, as my mother often says, like, they're so tiny that you really have to have good eyesight to see the nuance. But, like, the difference between a laugh cry, which is the little face that's sort of, like, angled, and then there's tears, and, like, a sweat, which is the sweat is coming out of the head, but it kind of looks like a cry. And then, like, an actual cry cry is very subtle, and but completely different in meaning. I don't think I knew that one was sweaty. <laughs> I just thought you're like crying and laughing, like really crying and laughing. <laughs> and one so. is like sad, like one's happy, one's sad, one's like, I'm stressed. Breasts and unnatural history. <laughs> I, in fact, have not Williams. read this, but I just loved it and I had to put it on my bookshelf. I love the cover, which is like Teletubby Hills. <laughs> yes, two mountains, also known as breasts. 
Did you know that breast milk contains substances similar to cannabis? I do now. <laughs> Sold on the internet for 262 times the price of it. Maybe, like, breast milk is going to be the new CBD. I mean, I think there was a restaurant in New York for a while that was making a breast milk latte. Dirty words. A literary <laughs> encyclopedia. Oh, what's fobbing? Look it up. Let's look it up. Do they have a glass right there? Ooh, here oh, here we go. Look it. Fobbing, crying during sex. Related terms, cyber, to cry, no, cryber, to cry while having cyber sex. I don't know if that's pronounced cheching or cha-ching, to cry while masturbate. I don't know why I said masturbating. To cry while masturbating, a.k.a. crywhacker. Fobbing, okay, so... We probably can't. Okay, so sobbing while blank. We can swear. Oh, we can swear. Okay. Fucking and sobbing. I, I, I love words. Like, I... I know... The, le- the All this language stuff. I've heard of people who so refer to it as, um, as cranking. Oh, I've never heard that. To cry, cry, cry wanking. Um, and I believe there is a Jason Statham film called either Crank or Cranking. Okay. I love it. Oh, because this is quite, it's quite broad, isn't it? Because some of them are properly rude and some are quite sort of right, educative. Right, like that we know. What's silver balling? I'm going to assume that's like cake decorating when you have those pretty decorations you put on the icing when... Um... Oh, this one you have to read the essay to find out. Oh, that's... I, I feel a bit TLDR about this. <laughs> um, I ask my friend Adrian when she comes back from her date with a Frenchman, she says confidently, oh, it's Ben Wobbles. You know, those balls you insert and then pull them out slowly, they're silver. That's silver balling. I Google it. One definition appears to be killing people. The term also turns up in a porn DVD description of something done in a stall, a horse stall, a bathroom stall. The Urban Slang Dictionary offers that it means when you skeet, skeet, skeet in your girlfriend's mouth and she spits it on your balls. <laughs> Producer Dale, you've got a heck of an edit job ahead of you. Uh, I mean, honestly, I don't, like, I respect this book, but Urban Dictionary will tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> so easy now we can just look on Urban Dictionary on our phones. We don't have to carry around the dirty words encyclopedia. Um, what did I just see? Um, that I, well, it's not, but you know, it's a segue. Uh, you have the Girl Scout handbook. Were you a Girl Scout? I was not a Girl Scout, but when I was researching, yeah, this is a vintage Girl Scout it's handbook. Beautiful. There's a gorgeous end paper, and there's this illustration. I don't know. I suppose I can find out when this is published. It looks maybe so late forties, early fifties. Um, oh, here we go. First impression, September fifty-three, mm. and so it's a very sort of belted coat with a full skirt and a beret line drawing so how did this come into your life I was never a girl scout but when I was researching my book feminist fight club which has illustrations I wanted to see how they illustrated the various little tactics and tools that they used and one of the things that feminist fight club tries to do is it provides quote-unquote, battle tactics for fighting sexism at work. And so I was using the language of war terminology in some cases and sort of turning it on its head to make it funny. And so this was really inspiration to see how they structured some of these tools that they teach the Girl Scouts and then to see how they illustrated them. This is great because it's full of illustrations. They're all really clear. There's a real... Oh, this is, I think, a... um instructions on how to how to lead a singing group 
Yeah, they're very instructional in how they convey a lot of this stuff, and I was trying to mimic that in some ways. Some of the you know, little diagrams, what is this for? How to warp a beam. Oh, <laughs> um, I always Some of the, you can that. tell that this is like retro in that some of the, you know, they've got like images with headdresses that you, you Ooh. know, are not considered okay today. Yeah, a square yard of material can make many costumes. Some of those costumes, I'm not sure, are quite gonna yeah. fly. Not it's really beautiful, though. I love vintage Ooh. books about women because they always have hilarious... I was beside the iconic Our Bodies Ourselves, yes. the most successful book about women ever published. Is that true? I don't Maybe know it was then. True. This is an early... I forgot what edition this is. Maybe, one, maybe the original? Um, oh, Boston Women's Health book collected British edition by Andrew Phillips oh, and Jill... British edition. Oh, so does that mean... I, I have the original Our Bodies, Ourselves edition printed out, <laughs> um, oh, not actually wow. in book format, um, from the Boston Women's Health Collective, which they sold for 75 cents when it was published. Let's see what year it was. Copyright 1970. That's so um, cool. And it was, you know... Handwritten, typed out. It's held together by those like big plastic. What yes. are those clips called? Stationery um, here. I don't know. What are those clips called? Oh yeah, butterfly clips. And so the original edition was called "Women and Their Bodies: A Course," and it was really the first book to talk to women openly about what goes on with our bodies. And then it also has all sorts of, you know, retro language and hilarious things that would not go over well today. But Our Bodies Ourselves recently celebrated, I think it's 50th, 60th anniversary. Have they updated it? Is there a new version? Yeah, so they've actually come out with a new edition, I think every decade. Like there was one in the 80s, there was one in the 90s, there was recently one. And so at one point I wrote a piece looking back on it for the anniversary that sort of compared the language over time. And it was so interesting to just see how we have evolved and how we talk about women's sexuality and women's bodies. It's incredible to see it and just, you know, on that photocopy, you know, that's like the front is stenciled and everything's like clearly done in a typewriter. I mean, I suppose now as well, have they kind of changed it to make it more... It looks more modern, yes. It looks more modern. And I think it's interesting, like... kind of gender inclusive now? Yes, absolutely. About the different people have But it's interesting, I don't think there's as much of a need for it today because so much of the education happens online. Whereas when I spoke to women who read the original Our Bodies Ourselves, you know, they were like in bookstores huddled in quarters, sort of secretly reading about their bodies because no one had talked to them about it in a frank way before. At the moment in the UK, there's this real, I mean, I think it's a a brilliant, brilliant thing. There's a glut of books that are all about kind of menstruation and periods. And every Mm. week I get two or three books like, no one's ever talked about periods before. Like, hmm, my bookcase begs to differ. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. Helen Gurley Brown, having it all. This, this is the first edition. Oh, that's the most glamorous, glamorous picture of the mouse burger on the front cover. Have you read this? Oh, you have? Because there is a single marker <laughs> in here. <laughs> it's okay to borrow ideas from a friend when you're stuck. 
and pink I wonder highlighter. if that's actually my interesting. I don't remember oh, yeah, highlighting that. Helen Gurley Brown I find so fascinating because she was so trailblazing in so many ways. But if you read her, so much of it is is antiquated and uses this very retro language and and sort of oh, and this is an incredible. Oh, subscribe to New Women. Have New Women delivered to your door. That. So this is a book that I, this is a vintage edition that I think I got on eBay or something. Um, and I, I opened it and there was this old, incredible, what looks like 80s magazine order sleeve that is for a magazine that I had never heard of called New Woman. <laughs> New Woman exclamation point. I think we had New Woman Do you, I in the UK, but I think it got shut down a while ago. I don't, the, it looks, the logo looks similar, but that might be... Based in Boulder, Colorado. Anyway, it's an incredible lavender turquoise logo with a woman in like a boxy 80s suit and bangs and hairspray. It's kind of lots of the ways of getting ahead are problematic and it's, kind, it's all very sort of... You might as well exploit men because what else can you do? But then, well, I don't she, know. For her time. Yeah. You know, a lot of these books that were so pivotal and instrumental to the culture had a moment in time. And if you read them today, they might seem outdated. But at the time, no one else was talking frankly about women and sex. And Helen Gurley Brown was. And this, I think this is kind of a, a ladder book. You know, I don't think we could get to here without her. Exactly. The contents on the back page are great, though. Sex and success. Try to make life thick and lush. The way to dress for the office is pretty. Dieting really is moral, sexy, and healthy. Yeah, things like that. <laughs> Maybe it wouldn't go over so well today. I, I really love her on money, though. I love how frank mm-hmm. she is about mm-hmm. just wanting to make a lot of it and yes. not being shy. I think she was ahead of her time in the way she talked about that, and I think and that still, still flies. Like, I think that women still struggle to talk about money today or feel like, Asking for more money is, you know, still perceived as unladylike or it's disliked and there's all this research to prove it. And she was talking openly about it. So even sometimes when the language she used feels, you know, antiquated and retro, the subject matter is still incredibly modern and in some ways groundbreaking. I think it'd be really, really fun to kind of update some of those books and like Mm -hmm. sort of sex me off it. Because the other thing is... This is going to get me into trouble. I don't, I'm trying to work out a way of putting it that isn't the way it's going to come out of my mouth. But while the endemic sexism and not being paid properly and so much of that world was just terrible, she does also make work sound like way more fun than it is now. Totally. <laughs> yeah, she makes it sound fun and sexy and Maybe there's a lot of drinking. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but like when you're having martinis all day long, like of course it's fun. It's an era that I didn't have the pleasure of living through, but in some ways sounds pretty good if you like drinking. You know, we'll all live beyond 40, so <laughs> yeah. hooray! Yeah, exactly. Ah, what do we need men for? Oh, is this a proof? Is this the, um, I love E. Jean Carroll. Did she write the... The advice column. Yeah, and the... In L. Devastating piece yes. about Trump and what happened in that changing I've not read this yet and I'm desperate to is it brilliant she's hilarious she's so funny I had not been I had not really followed her I had not read her column in Elle which has been going on for 30 years and when she published her excerpt from this book in New York magazine a few months back in which she describes 
being raped by Donald Trump, I had to meet her and I had to talk to her. And so I collaborated with a couple of uh, colleagues and we spent time with her and talked to her about this and we corroborated her claims. But her writing is just fantastic. And even when she's dealing with, you know, a very dark subject, she manages to be absolutely hilarious about it. And I admire her writing so much and I admire her voice so much. And the way that she structures this book is she decides that, you know, she's had all these terrible experiences with men over the course of her life. She is now in her 70s. She's kind of thinking back to the course of her career and the stuff she's had to put up with. And she decides to take her dog, Lewis, and jump in her Prius, and they're going to drive around America asking people in towns all over the country, do we really need men? What do we actually need men for? And then she's put it together in this funny but heart-wrenching book in which she's talking a lot about her past and her story and ways that you know men have harmed her in her life, but also bringing it into this larger context of, like, do we really need them? This is from a chapter called I'd Kill Him. Men have had enough nice books written about them, not this one, ladies. And the, the thing that I loved, that I think I marked, in the very beginning, she has this page, which I'll let you read. It's the third page in the book. Men, you're dying to get your hands on this book. You're excited and a little frightened to read it, of course. But first, before enjoying one of the greatest pleasures known to man, i.e. the reading of What Do We Need Men For?, you must receive a woman's stamp of approval. And then there's a little circle where, you know, you're supposed to get your stamp. <laughs> so, sorry, Sam. Yeah. You can't read this book yet. I'll give him my stamp of approval, though. Okay. Yeah, no, she's so clever and fascinating, and she... I didn't really know before her story as really a trailblazing, muckraking journalist who profiled all sorts of people and was working for, she was the first female contributing editor at Playboy during the era of, you know, amazing writers being a Playboy, and she wrote for Outside Magazine, and she... I mean, if you'll pardon the expression, that is ballsy. Yeah, exactly. You know, she was, she really came up in this era of these golden boys of journalism, like, Hunter S. Thompson, like all of these male writers, and she was sort of one of the few women standing alongside them, and then later in her life became this advice columnist, which is how most people know her today, but I feel like doesn't actually do justice to her past work. I'd not thought about that before, but that's so crazy, isn't it, when you think who her contemporaries were, and she should be that known, and oh, I wonder why she isn't. Why? Why? What reason could it be? I've just seen um, Double Love. And it's really interesting because that's, you know, I guess possibly because I am, I'm a woman in her 30s, interviewing lots of Mm -hmm. women in their 20s and 30s and 40s and beyond. But Sweet Valley High comes up, but the double love is the book that everyone has. Is it? These were, so at one point, Francine Pascal, the author, released like a new, do I have it here? She tried to put out like a modern like version. A, and a the few twins years were back. adults. Yeah, they were adults and like some, I don't know, some affair had happened, you know. Uh, and so the publishers sent me these as background research. And I went and I met with Francine and spent time with her and talked to her about this. How? Because my understanding is that 
We have mm-hmm. Will Jessica steal Todd from Elizabeth? Question mark. Uh, I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's, that's double up. Okay, and then secrets is the other one. Um, Jessica would stop at nothing. Um, it's they're so clear. Like every single one is about boys. Bruce Patman, Todd. Um, so funny. There's a really amazing Instagram account that I'm forgetting what it's called now, but they take Sweet Valley High covers and they put like hilarious, sassy. Um, titles on them like I'm so stoned right now I can't think or, but they always go with the, the photos I do love on um, Secrets I'm, I think I think we maybe have I'm going to say Elizabeth on the right and Jessica on the left mm-hmm. and if that is Jessica the amazing pink phone yeah, the he's holding with the cord receiver phone I love it how was Francine? yes she was incredible. Um, it was such a fun story to do, and she... Thank you, Pajistel. I knew there was something important I had to offer. <laughs> Francine was amazing, and she talked a lot about how, over time, these books were actually written almost by committee, because she would have all of these young writers, and there was this Bible, there was a Sweet Valley Bible, that listed every single little detail in it. Like, you know, Jessica's favorite color was lavender, not purple. Um, or the names and how they were to be referred to. Or... Um, the specifications of the charm heart necklace that they would both wear. And so it was this Bible that the writers would use to figure out how to, you know, convey these stories in within the parameters you of don't want Bruce Patman suddenly driving a BMW exactly, and not a Porsche. Exactly. Um, and and I think at the time she let me look at the Bible and it was like <gasps> Incredible. How is it presented? Because I'm imagining like a big sort of lever arch file. I'm trying to remember. So this was kind of the Sweet Valley Bible version of the photocopy. I think what I saw was essentially a lot of papers um, stapled together, but I'm sure they had, you know, they had to give it to everyone who worked on the book, so I'm sure they had more professionally printed copies. Well, is it like um, Mills and Bean where they had star writers? There must have been some that. There must have been, but her name was on all of them. Mm. But I mean, writers who's you know, their stories would always sell better than... Oh, I wonder. I don't think that the writers were ever revealed. Like, they were always sort of ghost writers, so no one would have known. So they don't have their name, like, in tiny letters... I don't think so. ...on the back page or something? No, I don't think that they do. Oh, there we go. Written by Kate Williams. They do, right on the title page. Written by Kate Williams, created by Francine Pascal. Okay, wait, let's see what this is. So Kate Williams wrote Secrets... Oh, oh, so Kate Williams. Oh, so maybe Kate Williams. Maybe she. Maybe we need to profile Kate Williams. Because I, I bet some of them have kind of gone on to oh writing, gosh, I'm just, I'm gonna being allowed to just have that, just their name on the book. Yeah, Kate Williams. I'm going to look her up. That would be a, make a fun story. Huge thanks to Jessica. You can follow her at Jessica Bennett on social media. Feminist Flight Club is published by Penguin and out now. Her latest book, This Is 18. Girls' Lives Through Girls' Eyes is out now and available through the New York Times Bookshop on their website. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I have been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me, fellow page turners. You can find me on Twitter at NotRollerGirl and on Instagram at the Daisy B. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acast.com slash booked, for more information about our guest and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people to find the podcast. For now, I leave you with this, supposedly from Jane Austen. 
I think I may boast myself to be, with all possible vanity, the most unlearned and uninformed female who ever dared to be an authoress. See you next time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.